Well, thank you for being here this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. And we'll be getting into that in just a second. We talked about the first few verses from chapter 15, which the Apostle Paul lays out a problem that this church has. And the best thing that you can do as a church member, if you, if you are a, a church member, somebody who comes to outward church on a regular basis or whatever, but the best thing that you can do is you can take these these things that the Apostle Paul tells this church, and you can take them to heart, and you can say, this is, this is also my problem. This is my issue. Maybe on a different scale, maybe more, maybe less, but this is my problem. And so what is their problem? Well, their problem is the fact that some of them, or there's a group of people who are negating the resurrection from the dead, and on some level, and we don't know for sure how, or what exactly the issue was, because it doesn't tell us. We're not going to say what we think it was exactly. But the point is that there are people who are denying the reality of the resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul goes back in chapter 15, and we covered this last week on Easter Sunday, and we, we covered what the Apostle Paul said, which was that this is of first importance, and this is what you have believed. If you have become a Christian, then this is what you have believed. You can't be a Christian without having believed this. Being a Christian isn't being an American. Being a Christian isn't being moral. Being a Christian isn't being somebody who's just nice and you do, uh, you, you do good to others, do more good than bad. It's none of those things. Being a Christian is believing the gospel in its fullness, in its fullness. Now, some of you, may have, maybe you've come to this place where you say, I, I, I've hoped in Jesus, I, I believe in who he is, and perhaps your faith is weak and you don't understand. And so that's why you need to hear the gospel reaffirmed in your life. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is telling them. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to say that he appeared uh, to various people and things of that nature. Now, what I, what I believe is, is probably uh, the most helpful thing that we can talk about this morning is to put it into context of everything that's going on in our world and everything that we're experiencing and everything, everything that we see and feel. And what, what are those things that we're seeing and feeling well, in large part, it, it is a sense of hopelessness that we see and feel throughout our lives, and our lives are very much, uh, in a way, caught up in the idea of it feels hopeless and I want to make it feel hopeful. And so the way that I make it feel hopeful is I do good or I try harder or I try to make more money to kind of to pad my life and make my life feel like things are going okay, or I, I try to have a sense of security in the political party that I support, whichever one that is, and so my security is found in that. My security is found in all kinds of, of various things, what the market is doing, uh, what my family uh, is doing and, and how, how well things are going for us, or whether my kids are in uh, the right school doing the right things, um, whether they can uh, play baseball well or, or soccer or whatever. Like our hope is so much wrapped in into all of these things. And what we oftentimes do not realize is that what uh, you believe shows up in your life. Your life shows what you believe about God. Your life shows it. 
your life is a replication of uh, what you believe about God or what you believe about the God in your life. So how you live your life is flowing out of where your hope is. And so when you find yourself in various ways where you're saying, I'd like to stop doing that, but I can't, or I don't, or, or I don't want to, whatever, what you can be sure of is that your, your last and your final hope is rooted in that thing. When you get angry over things that are, that are not going the way that you want them to or the way that you intended them to go, your, your last and your final hope is in the thing that you're angry about. Our world is in turmoil because you and I, you and I must see ourselves as the biggest problem in the equation. If you don't see yourself as the problem in every situation, you're arrogant. You are prideful. I am arrogant. I am prideful. Because when I walk into a situation and I think everyone else has the problem here, my, the people in my, my work, the people who I'm dealing with, like if they would stop doing that or if my spouse would start doing this or if, if they, everyone could only see how good I am or how, how great my life is or whatever, like those are things that are telling us like this is where my hope is and ultimately what's happening is this, is that that hope that is misplaced and in the wrong things, that hope, even doing good for people, being nice, even that hope is misplaced because it causes you to be able to look at other people and say, you're not doing good to people, and so therefore, you should be gone. Our world, the entire problem with our world comes down to their last and final hope, our last and final hope. Now, let me tell you this. The church is the hope of the world because of the message that the church brings. The message that the church brings when it is done truly and rightly redirects our world. It redirects the people around us. It redirects what's happening in our, uh, in our lives. The church is sent to be a shining light in, into our world, and the church is intended to say, no, you need to understand where real Hope lies. The reason why everything is falling apart in your life is because your hope is in something that is not lasting. Your hope is in something that will ultimately destroy you. Your hope is not real hope. Your hope is in a false God. And this is why when we come into the world and we can bring light into, we can bring light into any situation. We can bring light into the darkness. We are pushing back the darkness, as it were, because of the hope that we bring. Now, that hope is ultimately and, and finally completely wrapped up in this belief in the gospel. And the Apostle Paul is telling these people that their biggest problem, and he's going to go through several things here, but their biggest problem is that they do, they're not believing this theological point, and as a result of not having a deep and abiding hope in this theological point, it is going throughout their life, and it's causing them to be people who are sinning against others. They're not acting the way that the church should be acting in their world, and in fact, it's, it's mayhem inside of the context of the church. 
And so that church was not being a light to their city. That church was defaming the name of God, was not glorifying Him. So let's just stop for a second and just say this. Every one of us needs to say to ourselves, I'm the biggest problem in this situation. I'm the person who has false hope oftentimes. My hope is put in other things on a regular basis. That is what is bringing the conflict into my life. That is what is, that is, what is causing the disruption of my marriage. That is the issue. And so how do we secure that? How do we change that? So the Apostle Paul says this. I'm going to read uh, the entire thing here. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 
Well then, all right, Paul. Paul is ramped up there at the end. Why is he ramped up? Because the resurrection is absolutely important. Now, why is it important? The Apostle Paul starts going into uh, some implications of not believing in the gospel. And I, I, I want you to listen carefully. And the reason why I want you to listen carefully is that if you, if you do not understand this, you are not going to be living as a Christian in the way that God intended. I, I can just, just want to be clear. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say to you. And so he's saying both past, present, and future, there are, in all three ways, past, present, and future, there are implications that come from believing in the resurrection. And there's also implications in not believing in the resurrection. And these implications have, it is vast. Now, just for a second here, let me just say, there are people who will tell you, uh, in fact, Rob Bell, some years ago, I say this often, but, uh, or used to at least, uh, who writes um, uh, very unbiblical books. In fact, he wrote a book about the Bible recently and about what is in the Bible. It's a little bit like Donald Trump writing a book about humility, but that's aside from the point, um, nothing against Donald Trump per se, but it would be like that. And so, uh, but his point of view was you can remove a doctrine and it doesn't matter. You could remove a doctrine, and you don't necessarily have to believe every doctrine. And that is, it's just blatantly false. That's so irritating, it's stupid. It's so irritating because the scriptures are clear. Either you're a Christian and you believe the scriptures, or you don't. But don't sit and masquerade like you're a Christian and say that you're, you're not going to believe certain aspects of the scriptures because that's ridiculous. So what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that when you pull out this doctrine, there are massive implications both for, or for all three, past, uh, your past life, your present life, and the future of all things, the eschatological implications, the end in mind, like it has massive implications for all these things. And so if you don't wholeheartedly believe in the resurrection and live in the resurrection, then you are not going to be somebody who is walking with Jesus in the way that he wants you to walk. Your life is not going to display who Jesus is. Your life is not going to be a display of the kingdom of God right here and right now. And so, so many Christians are, we give intellectual assent to the resurrection. And Easter Sunday comes and goes, and perhaps we say, he's risen, he's risen indeed. Yeah, I believe that, or something along those lines. But what happens is this, is that resurrection is not played out in my life. Resurrection is not bolstering and giving me a foundational element of what it means to be a Christian. And so as a result, like life is not the same. Life is not the way that God intended. And your inability to suffer for Christ and suffer along with Christ is, is drastically limited because your last and final hope is not in the God of the universe, but your last and final hope is in, okay, I'll give intellectual assent to this God so that he'll make my life better, so that I will have nice things, and so that my kids will feel like things are going well, and so that my marriage will go well. But here's what God is gracious to do in your life, to destroy everything that's going on in your life to take things from you or to allow things to be taken from you so that you can finally see your last and your final hope is not in those things. And what's happening is this, is that you're not 
at least acting like you're even a believer in Jesus Christ. Because you believe that God is here to make you a healthy, wealthy, wise, respected, and whatever else, but that's just plainly not the truth. You've been sold a lie. So God is, God is gracious. I think I touched on this last week. God is gracious in allowing things to be taken from us. In the same way that something was taken from him, yet by his own uh, determined will, his life was taken from him so that something greater could come as a result. So what Paul says here is he says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So in a logical way, he's going to break down their problem. And their problem begins, and I, I, want, I want you to see this, and this is more uh, informational than it's going to be heart transformational, but I want you to see something, and that is he thinks that there are three things that are really important because he uh, repeats them. There are three main things that he's talking about. He's going to repeat them. Now, when you're doing study of the Word of God and you see a repeated word, or you see a repeated phrase, or you see something like that, you need to key into that and just go, oh, that's what he wants me to know. That's what he wants me to see. So pay attention to repeated things. So verse 13 and verse 16 go together. So let's read them in line. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Thank you, Paul. You've already said that. I heard you. No, he's saying, like, if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, then you have no hope. Jesus has not been raised. Look at the logic. This is the, the first thing. Like, if you don't have hope in Jesus being raised, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if this life is all that we have, if you can, if, if you can try to uh, set aside the resurrection and say, no, Jesus didn't mean, as they do in some uh, liberal Christian circles, oh, Jesus didn't mean this type of resurrection. Or, you know, we'll take everything else from Jesus' life, but we won't touch on the resurrection. No, the Apostle Paul is saying it is inextricably tied to your belief in Jesus Christ, this is what it means to be a Christian. And so, not even Christ has been raised, and so that's the very first problem because he just said, that is the crucial element of the gospel, along with the cross. Like, you can't have the gospel without the cross, and you can't have the cross without the resurrection, and so they go together. They have to be there. The second thing he says in verse 14 is, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Look at verse 17, slightly different. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's worthless. It's worthless. Don't be a Christian. Don't say that you're a Christian. If you're not going to believe in the resurrection, it is in vain. It's futile. It makes no sense. Besides that, our hope is this, that our sins have been forgiven on the cross. The resurrection attests to that. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to pay for sins. He goes to the cross. He's resurrected. And, he's, and what that means is that he paid for sins. So what is he saying? 
He's saying your faith is futile or even our own preaching. Why would I even preach to you? Why would I even say anything to you? It's in vain. It's futile. It's worthless. You shouldn't have faith and you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. You, you are not saved from what's wrong. You're not saved from all of the things that you've done in your life. It's futile. Lastly, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 18 goes together with that a little bit more loosely, but yet it still goes together. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What does he mean? We're found to be misrepresenting God. We are lying about God. If you deny the resurrection, either intentionally or unintentionally, you deny the resurrection through, through basically not living in the resurrection or in the hope of the resurrection, that's implicitly denying the resurrection. And so what you can say is this, is that I am a liar about God. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Your nose is as long as a telephone wire. You are a liar about God. You're lying about what he says is true. And you haven't taken it seriously. You're misrepresenting God. If it's true that the dead are not raised. And the last thing that he says there is, is he says this. And then those who have fallen asleep. It's, it's not that they're dead. It's just that they're extremely sleepy. They are in Christ and yet they've fallen asleep. And the great hope of those who are believers is that it's not that they're dead. It's not that that's the final word on, on, on them, on that person, on my loved one. That's not the final word. They're in, they're in the grave, but they are not dead. They have fallen asleep. And what's going to take place is that they can be raised from the dead along with all of us. But what Paul says here, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then you have no hope of seeing your loved ones, the people uh, from the church, uh, at all. You have no hope for those who are in Christ. That's the problem. He has broken down the problem, and he's basically said, everything that you're doing, it's a lie about God. It's it, everything that we have done and everything that we're about is, is foolish. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Why would I suffer for Christ and put my life in jeopardy, which, by the way, is the call of Christianity. The call of Christianity is not figurative or, or something that's ethereal out there. Like the call of Christianity in much of the world today is you believe you die. You preach for Jesus and you die. You lose everything. The, the call of Christianity is not to comfort it's not to you feeling better about yourself 
Although in that hope, you have more hope in who God believes you are. But the call to Christianity is not that. The call to Christianity is this, is that it is into suffering. Everyone else is going the other way. I'm going into suffering. People are sick and dying everywhere, and I'm going into suffering. I'm going to help. Numerous examples of that that we could point to of people being killed and even crucified today for their faith. The call to Christianity is to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. Now, why would you do that if there is no resurrection from the dead? He's going to say it later. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just enjoy life. If the goal of life is just this life and we have no hope outside of it, let's just do whatever we want. And guess what? We see that throughout our world. You see it in the church. I'm leaving my wife because I have come to this place that I, I'm, this, I'm not talking about myself, I'm uh, parroting someone else here, just, just in case you got a little worried there for a second, but I'm, uh, uh, I love my wife. Uh, we live in a trailer and things are getting tense, but uh, we have hope uh, in a finished house, which is not our, our, our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is in the resurrection. Back to what I was saying, though, uh, uh, I have no idea what I was saying, um, we only have hope in this life. And as a result, what takes place is that we see throughout our world the people that do not have any hope outside of this. It's get whatever I can right here and right now. You're, if you have a problem with corporate America and the greed that takes place there and, and on and on, whatever you want to say, if you come from more of a, a, a liberal perspective on, on politics, your problem with that political bent is that you see people who just want whatever they want right now, and they don't care about anybody else. Their last and their final hope is in making money for their shareholders and for themselves. Their last and final hope is just in that. If, if your problem is in uh, whoever else, it, perhaps your focus as somebody who's a conservative, and you say, you know what, I'm just really upset by all these people who are freeloading, whether they're freeloading or not, because a lot of them are not, by the way. But let's just say that that's your issue. Like, I'm, I'm upset because of all the freeloaders in the world. And really, what your problem is this, is that your problem is, is that, yeah, there are people who are freeloading because their last and their final hope is in this life is in this life. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, we should be pitied above everybody else because we're not getting ours. We're not going after the, the, the dollars, and we're not going after sex, and we're not going after power. We're not going after those things. What we're going after are people. We are fishers of men. We're going after people to bring them into the kingdom of God and to allow them to see who Jesus is and allow them to have their, their final hope in God. And so what's happening is this, is that I'm not getting the paycheck that I once wanted because of my commitment to Jesus. And I'm not getting the sex in the way that I want because of my commitment to Jesus. And I'm not getting what, I, what, I, what belongs to me because of my commitment to Jesus. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then that's foolish. 
You're to be pitied above all people if you live that way, and yet you do not believe in the resurrection. So folks who are continually and regularly denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ and yet claiming to be Christians are foolish. They are to be pitied above all else. So he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the true teaching. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does it mean? What's he saying there? He's saying this is the truth, and Jesus Christ is the guarantee that this can happen for you and I. This is the truth, that Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he was resurrected. So he is guaranteeing that resurrection is possible. He says this in verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's complicated. Let's stick with me here real quick. Sorry, just a little distraction here. I used to be worse than I am right now. A little bit of a squirrel uh, saw a shiny object. So um, this is a complicated point. I want to explain it to you because of this. The Apostle Paul has said, logically, this does not work out in our lives. This does not work out in a Christian perspective. But then he says this. You are uh, going after the very roots of the Christian religion. You are going after a central doctrine. And when you deny that doctrine, you are denying the faith overall. Or when you deny the doctrine of the resurrection, you're also bringing down with it original sin. You're bringing down the idea that because of Adam's sin, all of us, Adam as our representative, has caused all of us to be sinful. Adam is the one who brought sin in, in, into things, and as a result, every single one of us is sinful. Christ comes, and now he's a new representative of all people who would put faith in him. And so therefore, he is the firstborn, just like Adam was, the firstborn of everyone, and he represents all of humanity. And so because he sinned in the garden with his wife Eve, what's happening is this, is that all humanity is sinful. So all humanity goes down through the lines. God's plan of redemption has been going on since before time began, since before Adam. And then as a result, Jesus comes. He finally comes, and he is now the first fruits of everyone who would be saved in him. So he's the guarantee. Adam is the guarantee of all who shall be sinful, and Christ is the guarantee of all who will be made alive. There's more on this that we could get into, and I'll, I'll briefly uh, talk about this. From Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. He's talking about Adam there. Verse 18 of chapter 5 in Romans. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What is he saying there? He's saying the resurrection has implications, and the implications are this. If you deny the resurrection and the need for the resurrection, what you're denying is that Adam's sin has come to all of humanity, and then you're also denying that Jesus' perfection is needed, and then his resurrection is uh, made effective in the lives of people who believe in him. Verse 23, but each in his own order. It's, it's, it's getting deeper here. I'm just, I'm just going to tell you, you need to focus. You need to stay with me, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what is he doing? He's giving an order of how those will be resurrected. So from Christ on through those who believe in Christ and his resurrection, and then he's going to go on from there. What does this mean? It means this, if you deny the resurrection, not only are you denying the need for the resurrection, you're denying Adam's sin, you're denying your own sin, you're denying that Jesus was perfect, you're denying the need for a Savior, and then beyond that, you're denying the future. You're denying past, present, and future in your life and in the life of God's people. What is the future? Christ, the first fruits. He's going to be resurrected, or he was resurrected. Then at his coming, what's it talking about there? It's talking about the second coming of Christ. Those people who are believers are anticipating Jesus coming again because the scripture tells us so. So uh, we're expecting Jesus to come. And so what Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, what Paul is saying, he's saying that Jesus is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end. The end, the end of what? The end of history as we know it. Remember what I said last week, if you were here, that history is not just history. History is his story. It is the story of Jesus. It is the story of God. It is God's story. No matter what you believe about how creation came into existence through God whether it was this way or that way or whatever, as long as God is the one who enacted it, what we believe is this, is that God is the one who holds time. And what he is telling us here is that your belief in the resurrection affects what you believe about Christ, about your own resurrection, and then it says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. What does that mean? It means this, that Jesus is coming. He's coming back. And that is the, the beginning of the end. Jesus is coming back. He comes back. And what happens is this, is that he's going to deliver his kingdom, the kingdom of God, to God. So Jesus has enacted his kingdom. He comes into the world and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says there in the Gospels, I'm starting my kingdom. Boom, it all begins now. And he's enacting his kingdom. His rule and his reign are taking effect. And then when he returns, he's going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every rule, every authority, and power. So what does that mean? 
Not only does our belief in the resurrection affect past, present, and future, but we're, aff we're affecting, when we deny the resurrection, we're essentially saying that God, through Jesus Christ, is not going to take down every rule and every authority and every power. But what do those represent? It represents spiritual beings, perhaps, that are, that are enacting death and sin in our world. It's the, the destructive forces of our world. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how that is. I, there are people who have ideas about this. All we know is this, is that Jesus is returning, and when he returns, that is a, a function of his resurrection. It is an ability of his resurrection, and he's coming to take down everything that is sinful. He's coming to take down all things, every authority, every power. So Jesus is returning to do that. Now, what, why is that helpful? Because my hope is not in the here and now. You can take my house. You can take my family. You can take my life. But one day, Jesus will return. I know that because he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And because of his resurrection, now I have resurrection and so what I can be assured of is that he is the one who is returning. And because of his resurrection and because of his power, I know that he can take on every rule and every power and every authority. So my hope is not in this world. It is in a future world. My hope is in the God of the universe because he's returning to take care of all things. Do you see how the resurrection bleeds into every area of your life. Your great hope. When you don't take note of the resurrection, when you don't, when, when you don't think about it, when you don't... When in the moments of your deepest depression, your deepest darkness... Let, let me rephrase this. It is very easy to sit by yourself... And just simply say, life is lost. I mean, how many, how many people in this room right here are saying life is lost? It's all lost. It's all taken from me. How many people in this room are dealing with depression? How many people are dealing with, and I... I don't want you to raise your hand. I just want you to self-identify, perhaps. How many people in this room are just dealing with a consistent nagging that things are not okay? How many people are, are just saying, man, did, had, had I done this earlier in life, then everything would be different now, and, and this wouldn't have fallen apart, or I would have been more successful, or I would have been whatever, and that was taken from me at this age. It was my innocence that was taken from me. Or it was, it was something that was taken from me. A great hope is in the resurrection of our king. A great hope is not in those things. So I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to give you hope. And to say, when you sit in your room, in your tears, and when you cry aloud and you say, God, 
help me see you as my only hope, as my, the only thing that I have to hang on to. God, this is only exposing one thing in my life where my hope is placed in something other than you. But your resurrection is the first fruits. It is the promise that not only are you returning, but you're returning to take out those things at the knees that are destructive in my life, that are destructive in my world, that are taking things from me and from everybody else. Your resurrection proves it. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. You can't see it entirely, but Jesus is ruling and he is reigning right now in your life. Jesus is absolutely involved. He's not far off and distant. He's ruling and he's reigning in your circumstances. What proves it is his resurrection, his reign. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. God, where are you? How could you? He is ruling and he is reigning and he will finally and completely take all things out that are not of him, that are his enemies, the enemies of God, all those who have sided with Adam and said, you know what, forget you, God, forget your way, I'm going with Adam. I'm going to do what Adam is going to do, which, by the way, is all of us, until we say yes to God and no to Adam, until we say yes to Jesus Christ on the cross crucified and his resurrection and say no to Adam. He's reigning. He's ruling. The end is going to come. There is an end. We don't know when it will be, but he will bring his kingdom into fruition. He'll bring his kingdom. He'll take out all of those things, and he will reign. Can you tell yourself that? God, you are reigning in this situation. Your reign destroyed is death. Why is that important? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus can't take out death. Death is your enemy. Say, oh, this is a bunch of spiritual talk, Matt. You're talking about talking language that I, that I care about. If you don't care, you're not a believer. This is what the scriptures say, and the scriptures say this, that the last enemy is death. What are you fighting against? Death. You're bringing death into my life. I hate you. I'm going to kill you. You're fighting against death. The last enemy to go is death. Jesus is coming after death. You need resurrection. You need the hope that comes from Jesus, not from anything else. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and just so that you're aware Paul gives us an aside to this whole thing. Verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his or Jesus' feet. God, the Father, has put things, all things underneath Jesus. Jesus is in charge. He's ruling. He's reigning. Jesus is in authority. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection under Jesus, it is plain that he, the Father, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus. So when it says that God put all things underneath Jesus, it's not talking about God the Father. God the Father is not in subjection underneath Jesus. Who cares? The Apostle Paul does. Just so you cannot be confused here about your theological understanding of who God is, is that Jesus is not in charge of God. That's what Paul's saying. There is a, a, a flow of authority within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is in charge through Jesus Christ. He's put Jesus Christ in charge, and then once Jesus brings all things to fruition, in the end, every enemy is defeated, then all things are going to come back underneath God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus, that God may be all in all. God's ruling and reigning through Jesus Christ, who is God. The Apostle Paul believes, and I believe, that you must know about the sovereignty of God in all things and do not become confused as to how things are going. As Paul's talking about these things, Jesus is going to defeat the enemies and he's going to do that and he's going to do this. But lest you think that we're just talking about Jesus, one member of the Trinity, no, we're still talking about the same Trinity. We're still talking about the same God. This is not a new Trinity. This is not a new God. This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Don't get it mixed up. Verse 25 as we wrap, uh, 29 as we wrap up. Otherwise, what do we mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, baptism of the dead is false. Being baptized in lieu of somebody else who's already died. You can't save someone that way. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures say. The Apostle Paul does not condemn it, which is weird, but he also does not condone it. So he's not condoning this type of thing, but what he is doing is he's using their own logic, their own thought processes against them. And he's saying, why the heck are people doing this if there is no resurrection from the dead? What purpose could being baptized for somebody else do? Set aside the fact that it's ridiculous. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? What he's saying is, is, is like, I mean, I put myself in danger. I essentially feel like I die every day because of the misery and suffering that I'm going through. He may or may not have fought with beasts at Ephesus. He may be talking about someone else. Not sure, but what he's saying is, is he's saying, why would I fight with beasts at Ephesus, real beasts being thrown into the middle and being chewed up alive if the dead are not raised? Why would I put my life in jeopardy if the resurrection weren't real? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I love the next verse. You're drunk. <laughs> like, 
what are you smoking? That's what, that's what we'd say today. What are you smoking? Get out of your drunken stupor, he says. It is absurd that you attest to the Christian faith and do not affirm the resurrection. Bad company ruins good morals. When you allow people into your life and they're influencing you towards uh, false doctrines, that's affecting the way that you live. And what he's saying is this, your absolute belief in the resurrection affects how you live. Your belief in the resurrection affects every way that you live. Your hope in life is ultimately affected. We've talked at length about this already. Bad company ruins good morals. What you believe about the resurrection affects the way that you live. Do you believe in the resurrection? Are you a Christian in name only? It, let me ask you this. Is there sacrifice in your life? Where are you sacrificing? What, on, in what possible way could you say, I believe in the resurrection so much that I'm, it, and I'm not, I'm not saying like all of us need to go to Syria tomorrow, but sometimes we just need to go to work with that mentality. So I'm going to give up the promotion because I'm going to suffer for, for Christ for some reason. Because that promotion brings me to immoral places. Where, where could you possibly look at your life and say, like, there is proof in my life that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Where, where, where does that begin for you? Is sexual pleasure foregone in your life? Not in a marriage. That's a really bad marriage. But sexual pleasure as a single person, in some ways, that is suffering. You're giving up something. Why would you give that up if you do not believe in hope in the resurrection? When you give up at your job and you suffer because somebody deserves to, to, to just be blown out of the water, they lied about you, they took something from you, they took your lead, that person was your customer, what, what are you doing? How could you be so stupid? That, that's what you want to do. The suffering comes in saying, I'm stopping what I'm saying Christ suffered for me. I can suffer for him. My guarantee is the fact that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. I will be resurrected. And so my last and final hope isn't in that lead. My last and final hope isn't in finding a spouse. It is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that affects, affects my past, my present, and my future. Where are you suffering? Could you point to something? Or are you Christian in name only? Have you given intellectual assent to an idea of Jesus as a good person, 
Or has it affected your life? Because the power doesn't come and you saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, raising your hand, accepting uh, Jesus in, into your heart, praying a prayer. That doesn't change things. What changes things is real faith in the fact that he is God on a cross and that he was resurrected and he paid for my sin. That's real hope. My hope is played out in the resurrection every day. Every single one of us has a responsibility to point out in our own life, here's where my hope is right now, and it needs to be transferred into Jesus Christ because of his resurrection. Every single person in this room, you cannot be a Christian without a firm belief in the fact that I am a sinner saved by grace and I still have those tendencies. I need Jesus in my life. Do you need Jesus in your life? You must receive him and walk in him. If you're here in Christian, uh, as a Christian in name only, you better rethink your life. You need to walk with Jesus in a new way. Let's pray. God, we just want to take a minute and just think about you. Examine our lives. Will we come to your communion table? We remember what you've done for us on the cross. And I pray that we remember your resurrection and how that is to change our lives. Lord, may we, may we come to your table fully aware that my hope in some area of my life is in something else other than you. Would you convict me of that? It's in your name we pray, amen.